Hi, this is Scott Thompson. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends. Feel free to subscribe. Coming up on today's show, the LRT is back on the table in Hamilton. Well, kind of. Leuna has pitched an idea to resurrect the project. The Prime Minister has announced more money to help open up schools this year. And more protests and unfortunately killing in Kenosha, Wisconsin, after the shooting of Jacob Blake. It's all coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Dad is doing another East-West show with Calgary today, so I'm having pancakes. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Home Show. Here's Scott Thompson. And remember what I said about that shirt. I gotta wear a shirt. He's gotta wear a shirt. Oh, <laughs> where'd everybody go? Uh, good afternoon. It is 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson. Will Erskine back at the station, keeping the Scott Thompson Home Show on the air. Uh, week number 24 of. Feel free to jump into the conversation. We would love to hear from you. Facebook and Twitter. You'll find the podcast edition of the commentary waiting for you there. Uh, getting back to school. It's not about sides. I think we're all on the same side, aren't we? Here. Uh, feel free to weigh in on that. We would love to hear from you. Also, uh, don't forget, you can send us a note via the website, Scott Thompson at 900CHML.com. All right. Uh, once again, locally here in the Hammer, uh, LRT coming up. Uh, it just won't go away. And you have to wonder, you know, if it was relevant uh, before COVID-19, is it more relevant post-COVID-19? Uh, the construction union Leuna has pitched itself as a partner to the resurrection of the LRT project. Uh, this comes as analyst uh, a- analysis done for the union explored a variety of options for paying the bill. Uh, again, it seems that uh, th- this is something that will not go away, and you wonder if it's a matter of uh, when, not necessarily if. Let's bring in Larry DeAnne, former mayor of city of Hamilton. He is with us now. Larry, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. Yes, I'm fine, uh, Scott, and it's always a pleasure to speak with you. Uh, before we get to uh, LRT, I know you're a past principal. Your thoughts, uh, uh, quick comment on the anxiety and what everybody's feeling going uh, heading back to school. I know I've sort of blindsided you here. Oh, and uh, okay. obviously uh, with the Prime Minister ans- ask, uh, adding another $2 uh, billion to the mix here for provinces, your thoughts? Well, I think that's a good move on the Prime Minister's part. Um, <clears throat> one would hope that the... Uh, provinces, uh, being that education is a provincial jurisdiction, uh, would step up um, fully. Uh, but in the absence of that, and in a spirit of collaboration with provinces, uh, the federal government seems to have helped. And that will help, I'm sure. I don't know the details of how that money will roll out, but uh, $2 billion plus, even though it's spread across the country, can't uh, do anything but uh, but help. And yes, it's something that in my family we've talked a lot about over the last little while. I no longer have um, school-aged children that attend as students, but I do have uh, some relatives who attend as teachers and some grandkids who are going in um, uh, this September uh, whenever schools begin, and I'm concerned for them. I have a child who's going into junior kindergarten, um, so he's five years old, and I asked him just yesterday, I said, uh, um, John Paul, are you going to be wearing your mask all day? And he said, no. <laughs> uh-huh. And I think he was being a little limpish, but but he's five years old, and, yeah. and I don't know how long 
he can sustain the mask, uh, which has been mandated. And I understand why, and I think it's it's the right thing to do. But but he's five years old. The others are um, uh, ten and twelve, and they'll be they'll be fine in terms of that. But I'm concerned. You know, uh, my my daughter uh, is going into high school class. My daughter-in-law is going into an elementary school class. And uh, you wonder um, how how they're going to how they're going to manage. In fact, we've decided to have a um, a Labor Day barbecue here at my house, and then not see each other for a few weeks just in right. case. Yeah, yeah. Um, something comes up, right? So it well, even with the kids going out. back, some some grandparents are concerned. You know, when, once the kids get back to school, do they want to see the grandparents as often? So again, here we go again. Here we go again. So. I, but but listen, having said all that, it is important that kids go to school uh, to get an education. Uh, they're anxious to go. I mean, they want to go back. Even my five-year-old wants to go back. I'm sure to see friends and, and participate in a routine of sorts. But, of course, it is a worrisome time. All right, uh, let's move on to uh, LRT. Here's a clip of uh, Leona Vice President Joe Mancinelli and what he had to say in regard to uh, possibly joining the team to build LRT. This is an important project, not only for Hamiltonians, but even for them. The amount of revenue that the province and the feds will get on a big economic development project like this is enormous. So they stand to gain from the economic benefits of an LRT being built as well whether it be some of the buildings that are going to be built along the route or the LRT itself, those folks are going to be spending money in Hamilton and Flamborough and Ancaster, Stony Creek, Grimsby, Burlington, and even extended beyond the Hamilton area. So this is a big, big economic boom for this area and beyond. All right, that is uh, Leona v- uh, VP, Joe Mancinelli. Larry uh, Deani is with us, former mayor of the city of Hamilton. Your thoughts on uh, this new venture, this new collaboration? Well, I think it's exciting. I mean, it is, and I, you know, I agree with your introduction. This seems to be a never-ending uh, story, uh, for sure, in terms of LRT on again, off again, maybe, perhaps, uh, uh, no, and and now all of a sudden, a major player like Leona <clears throat> comes along and pledges uh, some support, some level of support uh, for the uh, for the uh, project, um, and in return also pledges to build some development along the route uh, that'll uh, enhance the uplift that the mayor has always talked about, the economic uplift that Fred has always talked about in terms of uh, the project. So it's not just a transit project, it's an economic development project. And the timing in terms of uh, looking for projects that are ready to go to help stimulate the economy again and get us out of the COVID doldrums uh, economic doldrums that have ensued um, seems to be right. And in fact, even Catherine McKenna, the infrastructure minister federally, said, I read somewhere that she said just recently that uh, the LRT is about the only uh, infrastructure program that's on the books that is ready to go for Hamilton. So it seems as if the the lines, uh, the, the stars are aligning again. Um, and and uh, the the thing not to to uh, understate here is that Leona's involvement not only will provide some private uh, dollars uh, perhaps along with some union <clears throat> financing for the project, but uh, but Leona is very very close to the provincial government to the federal government, 
I mean, they have a, 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 a government relations arm that is quite impressive. And uh, I think that augurs well uh, for the political side of, uh, of making this happen. So does it actually make more sense for this project now, post-COVID-19, or on the downside of the curb as opposed to pre? Well, so, I mean, there, there are a number of ways of looking at this, right? And, and if you read some of the staff, the early staff reports, um, the fact that there was a, uh, a transit manager that exited because apparently he disagreed uh, that LRT was, uh, that Hamilton was ready for LRT. If you look at the ridership, we're not where we need to be and we need to grow that. But on the other hand, that debate has occurred and council decided to go ahead with the project. And council was going ahead with the project. Remember, hundreds of thousands of dollars, if not millions of dollars, have been spent already towards this particular project. And it wasn't until afterwards that the new government, uh, the Ford government, came in and sort of pulled the rug from under this project. So we've had all the debates about are we ready for it, and we decided that we were ready for it and we were implementing it. So now um, that that so much delay has occurred, the, the question is, how do we get ourselves, how do we help ourselves out of this economic uh, mess that, that uh, we find ourselves in as the result of COVID? And this is one of the projects that will help. So that's got to be looked at. And I note, you know, with some irony as well, that there is a uh, <clears throat> there is a, an article in today's paper by one of the councillors, uh, Judy Partridge, um, who says now is not the time. But I think right. she wrote that obviously before she knew uh, what uh, what uh, Mancinelli was proposing, what Luna was proposing, and may rethink that. In fact, I I suspect a number of councillors may rethink that now that there is a a potential for a private sector. Let me call them that, even though they're a union, but a a, a third-party partnership that may be forming to assist in uh, both the financing and the development of this project. I think that's got to speak well for the project. Uh, you talked about uh, City Council, Larry, and we certainly know uh, the flip-flopping that went on uh, through this entire process up until now. Uh, do you think that this will still have the support of council? Uh, do you think this is another uh, opportunity for those that, that go back and forth to do just that? Well, and of course, you never know. With with an elected uh, council where people are free to speak their minds and there are different views, what might come out of it. But but I'm hopeful that that what they will do is look at this project now through the lens of not only government um, funding and and uh, and developing the project, but a third party uh, apart from government coming in to offer assistance, which means money and development uh, development potential even beyond the LRT. Uh, and so it's a different lens. And so I'm hoping that even those who who may have either a philosophical um, opinion against the project or a financial one will at the very least look at the facts uh and and i'm hoping that luna will be able to provide them with sufficient details on the financing side of it and staff will be able to analyze that as well and 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 cause council to renew its examination of a project that's long been in the books but now uh re-energized by a third party coming in saying they're willing to help.
So this changes the discussion in the sense that that third party does bring with it uh, finance. Uh, so what's next? What's next in this process? Uh, what about the federal government and the provincial government? Well, I think what's next is that the province, quite frankly, has to indicate that it's willing to play uh, to play uh, in this in this new scenario. Right. Um, a council um, uh, hasn't. Uh, I mean, they've stopped. Um, uh, moving the project ahead because the province said to stop. And they stopped, you know, uh, through uh, Metrolinx, they stopped purchasing properties. They So they've had to shut down the process. So council's in, in a bit of a standstill as to where to go with this other than to lobby the province to, you know, get it off the books. And we know that, the, you know, there was this high-powered committee that's provided a report the report says that LRT still makes sense, or BRT, some higher order transit makes sense. It's with the province, and the province has said that they will make a decision soon. Well, <clears throat> it's been a while. The soon has been longer than anybody anticipated, and and part of that, of course, is the COVID uh, situation that has sort of taken over everything that governments do for understandable reasons. But the next step needs to be that the province now needs to say, okay. We've heard what this third party has had to say. We like what they've had to say. So let's see if we can put this back on the rails, pardon the pun, and move forward. That would bring the feds in as well in terms of the infrastructure dollars that they do want to spend. And then council will have to make a decision as to whether they want to move forward with that, uh, given the new dynamics or not. But the first move, I think, is the provincial one. Uh, considering money announced for a Scarborough a subway extension, and I, I read somewhere that, that somebody said that uh, the government, the provincial government, seemed a bit optimistic, more optimistic on this. Uh, have you heard any rumblings of that? No, I mean I just what I've uh, read in the paper. I haven't focused right. on it a lot, other than there are projects hap- happening elsewhere, and the only one that was happening in Hamilton was kiboshed, which. I find a little disconcerting, quite frankly. So uh, how optimistic are you about this? Does this change the discussion? Well, as we know from past experience with the Red Hill Valley uh, Parkway, with the stadium debate, with, you name it, there are any number of issues that always arise in Hamilton. Uh, it seems as if uh, even when decisions are taken, they're never final uh, until until they're final, you know? Um, and so I, I'm cautiously optimistic. Actually, I'm excited, not just cautiously optimistic, excited that there's a third-party, well-known um, entity that has done a lot for Hamilton in terms of its development of strategies, and you can see them dotted all over the municipality from, uh, you know, along the Queen Elizabeth and downtown Hamilton, Stony Creek. I mean, they've got, they've got, and I'm sure I'm leaving out a whole bunch of others. They've got their their uh, their efforts uh, all over the place. So they are serious. They've got a track record, and they've come in to give some life to this debate. And so I'm optimistic that uh, that that has will cause, if it hasn't already caused, uh, the um, the uh, other levels of government to take notice. And and I might add that that you know Luna's made no secret of the fact that they've been supportive of this project right from the get-go. Uh, but I don't think that Mr. Mancinelli would have gone out and had a press conference and announced his plans if he hadn't already spoken to some other 
powers that be hmm. uh, to see what their reaction might be. And so he wouldn't have, he wouldn't have, I don't think, stuck his neck out uh, if he wasn't getting at least a positive look uh, rather than firm commitments. Do you think that's from the province? I, I you know, I had, don't yeah. have absolutely no inside right. information, but, but I've got to think that um, uh, that's true. In fact, I think I read somewhere that, that uh, Joe Mancinelli said that he's spoken to the premier about this. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, yeah, I think, I think he's gotten at least the signals um, to indicate that uh, we're going to look at this seriously. Larry Deany has been with us, former mayor, city of Hamilton, talking about uh, LRT and Leuna uh, stepping up to be a party in the uh, financing discussion. Larry, as always, thank you so much for the time. Be well. Good luck with the grandkids heading back to school. <laughs> Have a good day. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. All right. uh, Day three of the Republican National Convention today. Yesterday, uh, Mike Pompeo and some of the Trump kids and Milani spoke. Uh, To talk more about all of this, Reggie Cicchini, Washington producer, correspondent with Global News. He is with us now. Reggie, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. Yeah, good afternoon. Uh, first of all, uh, I'm going to side uh, T-bone you here and I wonder if this story is playing at all in the United States. It certainly here is here in Canada, that being uh, a top Trump advisor, uh, Peter Navarro, uh, disparages Canada's military efforts in Afghanistan. Any news of this down there? No, that's that's not even making the, uh, the, the waves in the U.S. down here at all. The talk still remains about uh, the RNC last night, the comments uh, that were and weren't made about the coronavirus pandemic and the looming hurricane that's coming to the U.S. coast. Uh, all right, let's move on. And day three of uh, the Republican convention. Compare day one to day two in your thoughts. Well, I mean, look, it, it, there are comparisons based on the tone. The first night of the RNC, it was a kind of doom and gloom scenario uh, that the Democrats would kind of sink the U.S. further, uh, you know, with all the, the violence and the the dysfunction that Republicans say is going on right now. Last night, we sort of heard that same sentiment, but we also saw uh, speakers trying to paint a softer picture of President Donald Trump as somebody who was able to rebuild an economy and, and, and kind of take a country in crisis and move it forward. Uh, at the end of the day, both nights of the RNC have really kind of repainted and redrawn history to uh, make the last three and a half years under President Trump seem better than they may actually have been. All right, Melania Trump speaking uh, last night. Many uh, complimented her on a uh, on a good speech, touching on a lot of the stuff that perhaps the campaign isn't focusing a lot on. Uh, how's that playing down there? Look, the speech is being uh, revered better than it did back in 2016 when she had been accused of uh, plagiarizing uh, the speech given by Michelle Obama back in 2008. Uh, she was a kind of sense of calm in what, again, still did have a bit of a fiery tone to it. Uh, she was one of the only people who spoke last night to actually acknowledge that the coronavirus is an ongoing pandemic where most people had talked about it uh, in past tense. She uh, said that she still stands and that she does stand with Americans who have lost a loved one because of the virus. That's something we really haven't heard so far. Uh, and she, again, tried to kind of, uh, you know, played down that tone that her husband has saying that, you know, this is the way that my husband speaks and you should be used to that by now. Uh, The criticism that she's taking is for doing this, A, at the White House, but B, speaking in front of a crowd that wasn't socially distant and no one was wearing a mask. Does uh, the Donald Trump campaign let her address the issues that perhaps he's less likely to? Well, I mean, look, her speech was written uh, over the last couple of weeks and it wasn't vet 
by anyone in the West Wing. So I don't even know if it would be uh, fair to say that they would let her say that because I, it, it's still unclear as to whether or not anyone in the president's realm actually had an idea as to what the first lady was going to talk about. Is that really possible, Reggie, that the uh, first lady can get up there and do and, and give a speech and the president or the White House staff not know what she's going to say? Is that possible? Well, well, look, Melania Trump is really trying to carve herself out as an independent and someone different from the administration. We've often seen her push back on some of the rhetoric that's spoken by her husband, uh, be it in terms of immigration or in terms uh, uh, even of bullying, uh, sometimes kind of going up against the attitude that's being given by the president. So there is a possibility here that she did write this uh, without anyone seeing it. We know that there weren't even a, a number of people from the East Wing in her office that assisted with that speech. It was solely just one of her closest allies. Uh, and assistance in her office, uh, and that's all when it came to writing this. So does this help Donald Trump, or does this point out the differences between the two? Well, I mean, look, at the end of the day, these conventions are kind of a relic of the past, uh, you know, when people were still trying to make up their minds. Uh, minds have been cemented now for the last three and a half years as to whether you're voting for Donald Trump or against Donald Trump, uh, and it's unclear as to whether or not these conventions uh, or the words, you know, from someone like, uh, the first lady or the night before someone like Nikki Haley, if that's actually going to move the needle and draw someone in, because at the end of the day, a few calm messages may still be drowned out by the kind of fiery rhetoric that we're hearing from all the rest of the speakers. So what can we expect today? Well, we're going to hear from the vice president. We're also going to hear from Kellyanne Conway. This is going to be her final kind of hurrah inside the administration before she steps out of the public eye at the very end of the month. Uh, Conway, you know, she's been an incredibly strong supporter of the president since he was a candidate in 2015, it's his longest serving ally. This will be someone who is able to kind of uh, wrap up what the last three and a half years have looked like inside the administration uh, before Kellyanne kind of rides off into the sunset. It all leads up to this acceptance speech that we'll hear from the president tomorrow. Reggie Giacchini has been with us, Washington producer and correspondent. Make sure you're watching Global News tonight at 530 and 6 for more on all of this. Reggie, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Thank you. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. The Prime Minister has announced this morning more money uh, to help school boards uh, open up this year safely. Uh, $2 billion to be spread out across the country. All provinces uh, getting a piece of this, depending upon uh, you know the number of students that they have, obviously. Uh, and, you know, pretty much uh, all provinces uh, across the country of every political stripe have basically the same sort of plan. Uh, and, and, and still, obviously, parents and, uh, and teachers and such are very concerned. So the prime minister has decided uh, at this point uh, to add another $2 billion to the mix, which is interesting considering many are asking why none of this was done earlier when they're addressing uh, the provincial governments throughout the country. So let's bring in Peter Gripp, professor of political science, McMaster University. He is with us now. Peter, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. I am, thanks. So your thoughts on the uh, $2 billion announced today? Many have uh, said that uh, right across the country, the provinces haven't been doing enough. Should, we have, should they have received this money earlier? Uh, well, probably not. <laughs> I mean, uh, to me, this is a, you know, a bit of a big uh, political move from the part of the, the prime minister. I think he realizes that uh, you're right, pretty much across every province, uh, uh, parents and teachers have not been very happy with what the provincial governments have put on the table. 
kind of an unwillingness in most cases to put much money into smaller class sizes or, you know, more on retrofitting or on personal protective equipment. So, I mean, this is an opportunity for the Prime Minister to, to come forward, promise, uh, you know, a substantial amount of money, but probably not that much in the grand scheme of things to, to get the kind of glory as well. I guess Justin Trudeau cares and understands as those provincial premiers don't. Um, but again, had he come forward with $2 billion earlier, I don't think the provinces would have necessarily done much different. Uh, I don't think you know, the presence or absence of this check really would, would have moved their ideas about whether they want to prioritize spending the money and getting involved in a much more complex planning process or, you know, as a case we've seen in most provinces, just, you know, hoping and praying <laughs> that, uh, that there isn't an outbreak, but otherwise not doing, uh, you know, a whole bunch uh, beyond the minimum to, to deal with the return to school. So what will they do with this now? Uh, if it wouldn't have done much before, what will it do now? Well, I mean, an announcement on, uh, I, I've already lost track of the date, but at the end of August here, a few days before school goes back, uh, you know, who knows when the money rolls. Uh, you know, by the time that money would actually be available to the provinces, uh, you know, the school year would be a good ways over. So I, I, don't, I think its actual impact will be minimum. But, I mean, money is, is fungible. You know, it can come in for this, and you can claim that the money you spent preparing the schools was, in fact, spent using this money, and and that's fine. I mean, in the big scheme of things, uh, the federal government really doesn't have a role under our Constitution in primary uh, you know, and secondary education. Um, and also, at the end of the day, the provinces have been left holding the bag with some pretty expensive things during this pandemic in both the health care system, but now in the education system. We've seen the municipalities with their transit systems all taking a hit because people aren't riding and, you know, so they've lost the fare box and so on. Um, so, I mean, there clearly needs to be some way for the federal government and the provinces to work together to deal with the debts. And certainly the federal government can borrow more cheaply than the provinces. So there's good reasons why the federal government should be sending money to the provinces to deal with these pressures. But taking, you know, $2 billion of that and saying, oh, this is our money for, say, school reopening, kind of a form of political theater given you know the billions of dollars that ultimately are, are flowing to the provinces to deal with a whole bunch of the challenges that covid uh, brought forward for them so the fact that parliament is prorogued right now is that relevant to this discussion does there need to be discussion about this debate about this uh, well at some point uh, there will be a budget presented and presumably this will be part of the transfers to provinces uh, you know lines in that budget and, you know, Parliament will be able to say, yes, we agree with the spending in that manner. So, I mean, yeah, the spending does have to be signed off by by, by Parliament. Uh, but, uh, you know, in terms of the timeframes of this, uh, I don't think it makes a, an iota of difference. I mean, the, again, money can be announced, but when it actually flows is usually some distance in the future. and Presumably that will come uh, after a budget. But uh, I don't think it's what would be slowing it down in a case such as this. Uh, should parents, or should this make parents feel more secure about sending their kids to school this September? Does it? Uh, I, I, obviously, that's uh, Justin Trudeau's hope, is that he will get a halo effect from this, or at the very least he can be seen as you know someone who's been pushing in the right direction and trying to make this happen. But uh, I think for most parents, uh, have a sense that the, the plan for return to school has been now uh, baked in. It's now pretty much baked in in each province. The plans are there. There will be tweaks, no doubt, as schools open and ideas change about how you can do it safely. But, uh, you know, in the grand scheme of things, this won't make a difference. I mean, it's not as if the Hamilton-Wentworth District School Board, uh, based on this announcement, can say, oh, we can, you know, put all this money into 
retrofitting some classrooms in terms of having better ventilation in them. I mean, it's just too late. <laughs> it's too late in the process. Uh, and they, they wouldn't even know whether that money would flow through the province for that or whether the provincial government would decide to use it for something else. So, yeah, I think for parents, um, this is, a you know, it's political theater. It probably doesn't do much to deal with their concerns and worries, both founded and unfounded, about what's going to happen this fall. Um, at, at the end of the day, uh, do we have really any choices here? Um, you know, it, it seems as we, it, well, we are, we're learning as we go here. Uh, are, are we looking for answers that aren't there? Uh, well, I mean, I think had there been a more serious set of moves back in May and June, about what this might look like and what might we do to think outside the box in terms of finding new spaces for classes so that we could run smaller classes and hiring people. I mean, it would have been very complicated and difficult, but I think there was a space there to make those decisions. But once, uh, you know, once no province wanted to go there at those at that stage, I mean, for fears that you would prepare for something and then it was all garbage anyways and people would say, why did you waste our money on that? Uh, you know, once they decided that it was going to be more or less status quo, I think we ended up with these very status quo solutions. Uh, I mean, similarly, probably more could have been done to say, well, how would, what would be a quality online learning experience? Uh, you know, to make it uh, this, you know, the, the possibility of reducing pressure on the classrooms that are there by uh, having maybe more students learn from home. But again, there, I don't think that was thought through. Uh, you know, nor was a question about if kids are staying home, how can we uh, ensure that their parents are able to earn incomes? So I think also wasn't thought through early on. So, I mean, it's a complex solution that I doubt any government would do very well in, in trying to find a, a way to bring these things together. But ultimately, I think our provinces wanted to play it safe, uh, didn't want to think big and be bold. And as a result, we have, you know, a situation that many parents and educators are saying, well, what's really going to happen uh, if there is a second outbreak, we'll just have to close this whole thing down again anyways because there's not much in the in the system uh, to protect uh, the kids against that happening. Um, I, I'm playing devil's advocate here, Peter. Are we putting too much pressure on the provinces here to find the solution? I've heard a couple of people say, you know, April, May, June, they should have been planning for this. Well, as a parent, in April, May, and June, uh, I couldn't even get my kid on a Zoom call with a teacher. There, there was so many other things going on just trying to get the school year finished. Um, so, uh, again, are, are we putting too much pressure on uh, the powers that be to make these decisions when, at the end of the day, it's up to everybody to be nimble and, and pivot with these things on, on very, very short notice? Uh, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty. Can we look back and say, well, we should have been planning for the future when we couldn't even get, get through the present? And, you know, even personally speaking with my son who, you know, was involved in obviously online learning during the year, and then we, we also signed him up for some courses during the summer. Uh, the summer courses were night and day compared to what he was doing during the school year. The, it was quite impressive, impressive what they were doing uh, during the summer. So, uh, again, you know, can we look back and, and say, gee whiz, in, in April we should have figured out how we were going to get them back to school when we couldn't even get them learning online back then? Well, how's this for a uh, wishy-washy answer? I'd say yes and no. <laughs> I mean... <laughs> I mean as individuals, there's a lot of things we can do, and that's one of the values of government is to have the capacity to plan uh, and think beyond the day-to-day in terms of these challenges that are looming. 
uh, you know, again, it maybe is a, was a lot to ask of a provincial government, which, as you point out, in April and May is still still trying to figure out how to deal with all that emergency remote teaching that suddenly they had to do. And as you point out, it didn't really uh, work that well in many cases. Uh, but nevertheless, I think there would have been, you know, there was capacity to think about uh, to think about that. And again, knowing that you have these quality online courses, if you were enrolling people in that rather than transitioning people, you know, around March break in a, an emergency means to, to online teaching, you know, there'd be possibilities. So, I mean, I think there was there was more capacity there. Uh, you're probably also right, though, that regardless of what they chose to do, uh, parents were going to be upset because uh, people are living with a lot of fear about what's going to happen to their kids. They don't want their kids to get sick uh, with, you know, a potentially uh, fatal uh, illness, uh, one that they can spread also to vulnerable family members. So in a situation like that, I think, you know, it's hard to have a rational discussion of the trade-offs because people are just so fearful that something really terrible is going to happen. So I think our governments would be criticized for whatever they did, you know, faced with people who are that concerned and that worried um, but I think at the same time we can say that uh, there was a time for more decisive action, and in many cases I think there was a strategic paralysis, not just in Ontario, but in most provinces. Peter Graf has been with us, Professor of Political Science at McMaster University. Peter, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. And you too. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. All right. Uh, last night marked the third night of protests uh, protests in Kenosha, Wisconsin, in the aftermath of the shooting of Jacob Blake, which has uh, put that city on uh, uh, on the world map, I guess. Uh, Michael Johnson is with the Kenosha News and joins us to talk about what's going on. Michael, thanks for the time. Hope you're doing well. Uh, thank you. I'm just really tired, but uh, I'm doing okay. Thanks for having me on. I, I can imagine uh, the amount of media outlets that you have talked to over the course of this. So give us a bit of an update here, Michael. Uh, what's been going on in regard to the third night of protests? And, and, and talk about some of the collateral damage, the other shootings that have gone on as a result of this. Uh, yeah, last night was, um, yeah, like you said, the third night of protests. Um you know, it was actually going, I was downtown kind of at the center of it all. It, it was going, you know, in my opinion, about it, as well as, as it could for a while. The protesters were, you know, they kind of engaged in a little bit of a cat and mouse game with the police officers. But the, the police presence was as, as strong as it's been um, since this started. And they kind of methodically drove the protesters uh, away from uh, downtown where everything's kind of staged centrally. Um, you know, kind of methodically, they let the protesters have space. A lot of debris was hurled, but nothing extremely violent. But there was a group of, uh, I guess I'll call them militia, um, that's kind of the term we're using, that was kind of camped out in front of a gas station near downtown. They were uh, just citizens bearing arms. They, 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 they claimed that they were protecting property, and, uh, you know, there were some verbal altercations with the protesters, um, which, you know, I could tell right, a lot, right away that, you know, you're just one hot head away from a, from a real right. bad incident. And unfortunately, probably a little after midnight, that's exactly what happened. Um, one of the protesters, I had a witness tell me who was about 50 feet away from one of the shootings that uh, a protester was, was a, a smashing or attempting to smash a car window. And the, the, the shooter told them to stop or tried to get him to stop. The protester allegedly, uh, this is what the witness told me again, ran at the, at the shooter and the shooter 
um, shot him in the head, and then, uh, from what I could gather in the ensuing scuffle, shot two more people, another of, of whom has died. So that's that's where we're at. It turned very violent, um, and you know there was less property destruction, less arson last night, um, less vandalism. But obviously, you had two deaths, so it just just uh, just tragic. So what was the relationship like between police and the community uh, in Kenosha prior to this event? Um, you know, tenuous, I, I, I feel. Um, it. I, I would say like a lot of other communities, I mean, it, some of the same issues with, um, you know, Kenosha is a, a pretty, it's a pretty segregated town. Um, you have um, black areas that are, um, you know, traditionally impoverished, um, generally the older areas of town, less resources, less money. Um, it's really a tale that, that repeats itself in, in many urban centers across this country. And, you know, the, the, the police have, have been alleged often to be um, kind of strong-handed in those areas, kind of focused more in those areas. Um, you know, I, I wouldn't say anything... Um, you know, there, there was a gentleman uh, in the early 2000s um, who was uh, shot and killed by police. That's been kind of a ongoing um, story here with the gentleman's father demanding justice for years. Um, you know, so there, there have been incidents, um, nothing obviously like this, but like a lot of places in this country, it's, it's tenuous. Um, relationships with the police are very divided along racial lines, and, and more so than racial and socioeconomic lines. Um People in, in impoverished communities feel generally like they're probably targeted more. Um, and, and so, again, like I said, it's a tale that um, it could happen in any city. I mean, it's, I don't think it's unique here. I don't think it's different. Um, you just have the right set of circumstances at this point. How are citizens in Kenosha reacting to the video we're all seeing? Yeah, it's, it's, it's just fear and terror and shock. Um, you know, the, the thing I see is just fear and anger. Um, nobody really knows what to think. Uh, you know, they, this kind of stuff, you know, doesn't happen here. I mean, it's a town of about 100,000. Uh, you know, this is not a major city. It's, it's right between Milwaukee and Chicago, so we're between two large cities. But um, it, it just shock and fear and anger and, you know, I think fear just more than anything. Um, you know, social media, as you can imagine, you know, there's rumors of everything, you know, uh, anything under the sun could, you know, that could possibly happen. And, you know, it's just, it's just disruption. People want their daily lives back. Um, you know, but I think people know that, that there's a conversation to be had, that, that this is not something that's just going to go away. And, uh, yeah, people are just very scared, but you know, there's a lot of people helping each other, cleaning up businesses and stuff. So, I mean, there's some good there. Many thought that with the uh, death of George Floyd, that that was a tipping point, uh, that things were starting to change. Uh, is that feeling, do you, do you feel that? Or, and especially within the, the, the what has happened to Jacob Blake, is this a turning point? Are people realizing something's got to be done here? Something's got to change? Well, that's that's a really good question, and, and I think that's the thing that's been kind of bothering me personally is I think I think people know that something has to change. I think they realize it's a turning point, but unfortunately, I see the same patterns playing out. I I, I do a lot of work in sports, and, and through that, I've gotten to know a lot of um, uh, black leaders in the community who I try to speak with frequently, especially now, uh, trying to get their their opinions 
um, you know, and their feelings on the topic. And, and what they really want is for leaders in the city and leaders in the community and law enforcement officials to just come into some of these neighborhoods and just talk to people um, and, and, and just, just try to listen and understand. And I know that sounds, um, you know, idealistic, but it, there seems to be so much fear between, you know, one subset of the community, I would call that the people that, you know, live in, in wealthier areas, the people that are maybe in positions of political leadership, law enforcement positions, and there's a big barrier of fear between them and impoverished communities. And I think what needs to happen is there needs to be, that fear needs to go away. These conversations need to be had. The weapons need to be put down. People need to talk. But what you're seeing here is the fear is just intensifying. And I fear that with the police just getting more militaristic, arming up more, increasing their presence. And I understand why they have to, but I don't feel like that leads to change. Unfortunately, I'm scared that both sides are digging in further um, and just getting angrier. And I just pray that that's not the case. But so far, I just don't see any reason to believe that things will change um, despite the turbulence. It's very scary to me. Where are the police in this investigation? We understand the, the officers involved are on leave. What about charges? Uh, I, I, I can't answer that. Um, I'm actually, I'm not in the office today. I apologize. Our, we have reporters that are specifically working on that angle. I do not know where they're at with charges on the, 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 the police officer involved in the shooting. Um, you know, I know everyone's demanding swift justice. They've been very tight-lipped. Um, they've been very tight-lipped about all that. We have not gotten much about what's going on with the, the DOJ investigation into that shooter and as far as the shooter last night, I have heard he's been charged, but um, I don't know exactly where the process is at. So I, I apologize. I just don't want to say anything factually that I, I, I'm not sure of at this point. Michael Johnson has been with us with the Kenosha News. Last night marks the third night of protest in Kenosha, Wisconsin, in the aftermath of the shooting of Jacob Blake. Michael, thank you so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Good luck. Thank you. I appreciate you having me on. Have a good one. I appreciate it. All right, the Toronto Raptors considering boycotting games over the Jacob Blake shooting, which uh, happened, as we just mentioned, in Kenosha, Wisconsin. Uh, here is a clip from Toronto Raptor Fred Van... Sorry? So, oh, we don't have the clip. I'm sorry. All right. Uh, so uh, Fred Van Bleek and Norman, pa- Norman Powell have talked about this and have had these discussions with the team uh obviously a uh this is something that is going to make waves is going to get attention and uh, pretty courageous of these two let's bring in Esfendiar uh, uh Bereni, Raptors Republic and is with us now Esfendiar thank you so much for the time I hope you're doing well doing well man doing well as I can be thank you for having me on the show so your thoughts about this this is a pretty big move for these two uh tell us is the rest of the team behind this where are we at uh, well, I think there's uh, there's definitely a general discussion, both from the Toronto Raptors and their opponent, the Boston Celtics, about potentially boycotting Game 1, and if not, the entire uh, playoff series. But I think it has gotten to the point where it's it's become an option. You know, I think a couple of days ago when they had mentioned it, it was more so just a conversation that they were throwing out there. But at this point, it's gotten to the point where it's an actual conversation where they're having, and they're actually considering it. And from all the press conferences that we're seeing today, it seems as though the players are going to have a meeting tonight. Uh, both sides, both the Celtics and the Toronto Raptors, are going to have a meeting to discuss whether that's a viable option and if that if that's the best route to go by. 
Uh, obviously, this team incredibly tight with everything that they've been through. Uh, obviously, the love for the coach and the coach of the year. Also, uh, w- with new evidence that has come out in regard to the president and what he went through during the playoff scenario. Uh, is this something that you think has momentum? Do you see this happening? I do. I, I do potentially see them at least doing a boycott for one game. I think uh, at the end of the day, this is the best way for the players to leverage their platform. If you really think about what they can do with uh, with the platform that they've been been provided because of this bubble, uh, this is their perfect way to kind of get the media attention that they need to and really put the onus on the owners of the league to take action quickly because it, it hurts them where it hurts, where it hurts the most, right? The pockets. And um, I, I think that's, that's one thing that they've understood. These are smart NBA players. They're very, very well educated. Fred Van Vliet and Norman Powell and on the other side, Jalen Brown have, have been very vocal about the Black Lives Matter movement. They understand what it takes to make a change. And I think this is a good chance for them to do that. Uh, many have asked the question if, uh, although a, no, a, a very noble move, is this going to change things? But then on the other hand, if we're talking about it, how can it not at least move the conversation in that direction? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think more than anything, it will at least force us to address the issue um, either through the media or through ownership itself of the NBA teams. I think that's really what players are focusing on the most. They want the ownership of the teams to really um, take action. You know, some of these owners are, are billionaires and millionaires, and they have a lot of connections to different legal platforms and politicians and, and various different avenues that they can pursue different types of change that their players, their employees essentially, uh, are looking to create. And I think if you put the pressure on them this way, then there is no other way for them to hear you. It, it, it's inevitable for them to kind of oblige. What can the league do? What can these teams do? I think more than anything, it's to create a meaningful way of, of impacting what's going on outside of that NBA bubble. Uh, you know, when you go back and look at what the NBA had set out throughout these four months in order to address social justice, whether it's creating things on the back of the jersey signs and, and and sayings in the back of the jerseys or black lives matter shirts or kneeling during the national anthem i think there's those are more of uh you know show pieces they're, they're ways they're performative but at the same time they don't create real impactful change i think one way and and that's the way the players are looking at it the most is to get the owners of these teams and you know we talked about wisconsin you talked about it on the show earlier the milwaukee bucks have a huge responsibility here because they're the only team in Wisconsin. And if they can potentially create some type of change with their owner, then that will create some kind of uh, movement there for the NBA players. They're, at this point, they're just trying to use their platform in the way they think is, is best to make some kind of real impactful change. Uh, the NBA been very proactive about supporting Black Lives Matter. Are we going to see Major League Baseball? Are we going to see the NFL follow this, do you think? Uh, well, I, I think they've, they've, uh, they've done what they can in a sense i i would say that they're definitely behind the nba the nba has always kind of been at the forefront of these types of social justice issues and i think you know credit to the nba and adam silver for doing that but at the same time if you know if you're going to represent yourself as this forefront as this very um you know revolutionary league that is constantly looking to change and make impact outside of your own league then you kind of have to talk the talk and walk the walk as well you can't just make, you know, symbols on the back of people's jerseys and think that's going to be enough. 
there has to be some kind of real impactful change. And I know I probably sound like a broken record with that, but it, it's true. You need some kind of real impactful change in order for that to happen. As Fandiar, do you see, does this seem odd to you that it's a Toronto team that's taking the stand and not a U.S. team? Uh, I would say to, to people that to people that think that would have to go ahead and do research on all of the social justice issues and uh, you know issues of both police brutality and racism that we see here in Canada. Um, myself, I'm a Middle Eastern man. I definitely don't have the same issues that a, a, a black man or a black woman or an, a, an indigenous woman or an indigenous man would have to deal with. But at the same time, I'm very very understanding that those issues. Do are here in Canada? They exist, and I think it would be kind of ignorant to say that they don't. Um, not so much saying that that that's the reason, but uh, oddly enough, that it's a Canadian team standing up before an American team. Yeah, well, I, I think that just goes by the, the like you said earlier. Their president, Masai Ujiri, is a very outspoken person. Yeah. He's um, he's very vocal when it comes to talking about these issues, and um, you know because of that, I feel like the players themselves. They believe they have a responsibility as well, and you know, mm. you're 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 kind of following your leader at this point. And with Masai kind of helming the ship, as you would say, it it, it works out to be that they're just as passionate about it. Are the, are the Raptors league leaders on this? Do you think? I would say so. Yeah, they've they've set the precedent. I mean, if you think about what they did when they got into the bubble with the Black Lives Matter. Uh, buses that they they drove into and they created a PSA video about voting uh, for for people outside of the United States. I think they're really pushing the envelope here compared to other NBA teams. I know there are a couple other NBA teams that are creating different uh, kind of missions to to for for helping voting and things like that. But at the same time, I think the Raptors are really pushing the envelope. And kudos to them for being the only team outside of the U.S. to really push it right. It is pretty impressive. Uh, Esfandier Bereni has been with us from Raptors Republic. Thanks so much for the time. Much appreciated. Be well. Thank you, Scott. Appreciate it. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.